Thank you, Richard. It is indeed a pleasure to be back in Gaisley again. You know, I, it's more than just a pleasure, it's a privilege. And I feel that as we near the close of time, we are no doubt going to be doing more and more of this kind of thing as God leads his people. And uh, speaking of God leading, I, uh, Peter, Gregory, and I did not discuss what we were going to be preaching on this weekend together um, ahead of time. In fact, we still haven't discussed it even now. <laughs> but there's something I sense from the messages that have been presented and will be presented this weekend. There is a, there's a, a, a unity in these messages, and I thank the Lord for that, Brother Gregory. Um, I sense that, um, that God is moving in a way that will help all of us to prepare uh, for what is coming upon the world. And there's nothing more important now in our experience than to be ready for Jesus to work. As the darkness of sin and ignorance of God's word once again settles upon this earth, Jesus is calling for men and women to rise up and do a work of present truth, to warn the people and to awaken them to their spiritual condition. And I'm thrilled to see what's going on here in Britain. What I'm seeing is not a lot of institutions getting started, but there is the institution of God's Spirit moving on individuals. And especially in the literature work, and in the Bible study work, and in the various types of evangelism going on, I am moved by enthusiasm for what I see happening. And I know that God is at work, and I thank the Lord that there are so many who are here doing these things. Now, we all have a calling, and we all have a ministry, and God calls us to this. And we need to respond. We can't like, be like Jonah and run off to Nineveh, or run, run away from Nineveh. We must go where God calls us and do His work. Um, we haven't had a mission story this morning yet. And I would like to just share something, a little of a mission story, if I may. In fact, I have several up my sleeve. Maybe I'll get through them before the weekend is over. But um, I want to tell you about Johnny. Johnny Carmouche. None of you have probably ever heard of Johnny Carmouche, but that doesn't matter. What matters is that God is using this man in a unique way. Johnny Carmouche was raised a Seventh-day Adventist, and he left the faith. He was married to a woman that um, was unfaithful to him, and one night uh, he managed to um, arrive uh, at the same hotel where his wife and her boyfriend were breaking up for the evening and they had an argument outside the hotel and Johnny flew into a rage and killed this man who had been with his wife. He was arraigned and uh, put on trial and sent to prison for 20 years. Now in Virginia, which is where he is incarcerated, in Virginia there are very, very strict laws. In fact, in the last few years, they have instituted a law that 
does not allow anyone who is incarcerated to get out on parole early. You know, parole. They, they let you out early if you have good behavior, you know, and so on. Well, fortunately, Johnny Carmouche doesn't fall under that law because he was already convicted and sent to prison before that law came into place. In fact, he's been in prison now, I believe, it's seven years there in Virginia, not far from Heartland. While in prison, Johnny was reconverted to the Lord and was rebaptized into the Seventh-day Adventist faith. Now he is there in prison and he is, has decided to spend his time getting other prisoners ready to meet the Lord. It's marvelous to watch what's happening. That man has turned up the Stanton Correctional Prison. He has turned it upside down. He had a, a, a burden to get into the hands of these prisoners literature that will lead them to the truth. And uh, so he prayed and eventually managed to make contact with someone who would provide them with a large quantity of Desire of Ages. And so he had to go to the prison warden to try and get them into the, into the prison. And the prison warden... Uh, the prison warden was not that favorable to Johnny. You see, Johnny had the Sabbath, and, and this Sabbath problem had created some, some, some difficulties for Johnny there in prison. Nevertheless, uh, Johnny humbly went to him and the first time and asked if it would be all right if, if he could bring in some of these uh, books. The prison warden chewed him out. What do you think you're doing? What do you, who do you think you are that you can break all the prison rules? We don't allow large quantities of books to come in. And he really get you and your this and that, and, you know, on and on he went. But Johnny didn't give up. He went back and he prayed. He prayed some more. And um, he prayed again and again. And he kept praying and asking God to soften this man's heart. Finally, he decided he was going back to see him again. And this time, the prison warden had a different attitude. Prayer does wonderful things. In fact, the prison warden said, all right, well, look. He might have felt bad about how he treated him the last time. I don't know. But anyway, the Holy Spirit worked on his heart. And he said, listen, I'll tell you what we can do. You may bring the books in through the chaplain's office but only for those who request them. Well, that's the way we want to have it anyway, really. Because uh, often they'll end up in the bin if, if, um, if, if people aren't interested in them. But those who have interest are going to read them. So Johnny set about raising up some interest. <laughs> he started talking wherever he went with other prisoners about this book. He had his own copy, you understand. So he would show them things out of the book, and the man would say, well, where can I get a copy of that? Well, ask the chaplain. He's got them. <laughs> so now Desire of Ages is all over the prison. There's hundreds of prisoners there. And uh, there's an association of, um, of uh, Seventh-day Adventists who have weekly services there in the prison. And Johnny goes there, and... and uh, uh, 
they fellowship together and and uh, he brings his friends to the Sabbath services and so on. Well, Johnny has a, a, a little rock out on the on the ball field, you know, and in the prison they have exercise when the weather's nice and they're allowed to go out and play in the ball field and do whatever they, I guess they don't have any ball field. They can't use a bat in prison. That could become a weapon. <laughs> so I don't know what they do out there, but anyway, they have a big field, open field, and over on the, the higher end of the field there's this rock. And the prisoners call it the Carmouche Rock. It's where Johnny goes when it's recreation time. They go outside there and he sits there at his rock. And the prisoners, some of them will come over and talk to him there and ask him questions about the Bible. And one day, a man came to Johnny and he said, Johnny, he said, um, uh, well, I, I, would, I, I would like to study the Bible. But he says, I don't want anyone else to know that I'm studying the Bible. Johnny said, okay. Um, but there's a problem. This man, he knew this man, and, and Johnny didn't like this man very well. He, he is a chain smoker, just one cigarette after another. And there's always blowing smoke in his face. You know, so... Uh, that and, and he had an awful problem of cussing and swearing. You know, every other word, you know, is, is a swear word. So he says, but, but Johnny says, well, do you have a Bible? The man said, no, I don't have a Bible. Well, we'll get you a Bible. Can you read? He says, no. Uh, the man said, I, but there's another problem. He says, I need you to teach me how to read because I don't know how to read. How can I study the Bible if I don't know how to read? So apparently this man is quite illiterate. Well, Johnny thought about it a little while, then he came back to this man, all right, he says, I will teach you how to read under the following conditions. And if you don't follow these conditions, it's all over. That's it. I'm not going to carry on. He thought for sure this man would refuse when he heard all these conditions. Number one, he must not smoke in Johnny's presence. Number two, he must not swear in Johnny's presence. And number three, they would only study from the King James Version of the Bible. And I think there was a fourth one. Oh, and they must meet every day. Every single day. You can't miss a single meeting. Well, this man, instead of refusing the Bible studies and the reading lessons, he accepted them. So Johnny thought, oh, what am I going to do now? <laughs> well, Johnny had never taught anybody else to read. You know, how do you teach somebody to read, especially when there's an older person? Not easy, is it? He sat down, they got a Bible, and they began having their Bible lessons. Well, needless to say, this man broke his promise many times. But each time Johnny thought, well, I'll give him one more chance. Because he was earnest and sincere. You know, he, but he'd cuss or something in, in, <laughs> in the meeting. When he was having a hard time reading, he would make some curse word or whatever. Or uh, he'd miss, 
he'd missed one of their meetings or something, you know. And so, but Johnny kept letting him come back and giving him a little mercy, a little more time, you know. You know something? That man, not only, well, he stopped smoking. I mean, after a year of this, he finally quit smoking altogether. Not only that, he cleaned up his language. He learned to read. Now he studies the Bible for himself. He understands present truth. He's asked and received baptism. He is now a Seventh-day Adventist. I tell you what, God has Johnny in prison for a reason. He started handing out national Sunday laws, you know, after Desire of Eight, you know, all right? Now the prison is all asking questions all around the prison, various prisoners, about what is this Sabbath thing? And Johnny has to sit on his rock and explain to the people about the Sabbath. This is all in prison. Johnny's tried to get out on parole. Because of the, the law, nevertheless, they're very hesitant to give anyone parole, even if they were prior to the new law. And I said to... Johnny, when I visited him a while back, I said, God has you in this prison for a reason. If you are out in parole or if you've been transferred to another prison, actually he wants to get to a prison that's closer to Hartland. He, he's, we brought, because of Johnny, the choir went over there to the prison in Stanton and sang to the prisoners from Hartland College. And um, he's taking video classes from Hartland College and getting various... Uh, Class is done. He wants to actually get a diploma from Heartland College. He's, what, 50 years old, something like that? He's a man who has a deep burden for souls. And I'm thrilled to tell you that Johnny is working where you and I might not be able to work. He has access to prisoners that we would not have. He is one of them. See? So, in spite of the, 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 the bad things that happen, God can still use it to His glory and His honor. And Johnny's there in that prison because God wants him to witness to others. And there are many now who are studying the Bible with Johnny on a regular basis. They're continuing to seek after the truth. And I, my guess is there will be many prisoners in the Stanton prison that will become part of God's people before the end of time. Not only that, when they get out of prison, what happens? Even if they haven't made a commitment there, let's say they know about the Sabbath because of Johnny, but they, they don't really you know, see it as a, an important issue. When they get out of prison, and let's say they have a crisis, or let's say when the major crisis comes, the economic crisis comes upon this world like it's going to. We're promised in Scripture and inspiration that there's going to be a huge economic crisis. What are these people going to say? Oh, where are those Adventists? Aren't they? They're going to start looking. They're going to say, I heard about that Sabbath thing before. Now let me think, where was that? And God is going to bring them back. And at the, at the right moment, He's going to bring them to the truth and bring them to his people. So, I just thought you'd be interested to hear about Johnny. This afternoon, if we have time, I'm going to tell you about Susan. Susan Hill. She's, uh, she's a woman who is, is uh, 
close to us there at Heartland, and um, her work with us has produced some very unexpected results. And this afternoon I'm going to share that story with you if we have time. Uh, today, <clears throat> I want to say that I'm glad that, that uh, Brother Gregory is taking the approach he's taking with Bible study, and I believe that more than ever we must get into the Bible. It is the Bible that provides the foundation for our faith. It is the Bible that is the enthusiasm and the support for our message it is the Bible that brings us courage and faith in times of trial and difficulty. It is the Bible that is the center of our hopes. It is the Bible that brings us to the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm thankful that today we have the Scriptures. That we have the Bible, that we may use it. That we may use the sword in our ministry. And many of us have often neglected to study the Scriptures. The study of God's Holy Word is what brings us to the, the great principles of the Gospel. But it also answers the questions between truth and error, and it shows us what is the path of truth. Now... There are many falsehoods and false teachings out there in the world. And it's the privilege of God's last generation people to be people of the book. People of the word. Those who believe and uphold the scriptures above everything else. That's what God has called us to be. Why is it that no longer Seventh-day Adventist often known as the people of the book? It's because we have stopped studying as we should. Often we want to depend on the preacher or the pastor or the conference president or some other important person to tell us what is the truth and to answer all our questions. We come to church on Sabbath morning and then we go home and forget about it until next Sabbath. We come to get a little bit of something and we go home and then we go on with the rest of our lives and, and there's very little that we do in terms of of not only Bible study, but in sharing and witness. The lethargic and comatose spirit of Adventism is ripening. And it's going to produce a baleful harvest. Many of God's people are unready for what is coming. Hardly a word was spoken for a long time in any Adventist publication, for example, concerning the Pope's encyclical. And this is a devastating doc, uh, document. If you have a copy of it or if you have read it, you will understand what I'm talking about. And I'm going to spend some time this morning and do a Bible study with us answering some of the very questions that the Pope has tried to answer falsely. The reason I'm doing this is not so you can go and, and tell the Pope how wrong he is. It won't help. But there's a lot of people out there that are listening to him. That have questions because they've also been listening to others. And there's a lot of false teaching out there. When the Sabbath issues come to the front, as they are presently, there are going to be a lot of people asking for the reason of the faith that is within us. And so we must have the answers. 
And I'm going to show you here how not only the Pope, but others who teach as the Pope does, have not only falsified history, but have misrepresented inspiration and misrepresented God himself. I want to read to you a letter that was written to the Adventist Review concerning an article that they published in early October on the Pope's encyclical. Finally, and it wasn't a, a bad article really, it was, was alright. It says, Today my mail was dominated by two eye-catchers. The review bannering the Pope's Lord's Day encyclical, Analysis and Response. And it is, and, and it is written mailer hailing what way, America, the Pope calls for Sunday observance. Having read the Pope's message firsthand, I find it to be very thoughtful and heartfelt appeal to his own bishops to revive a commitment to Christianity. <coughs> I find no conspiratorial attack on those who choose to keep the Seventh-day Sabbath. How can you attack without laying the groundwork? The Pope laid the groundwork. Preparing for the attack. I find the declaration of war comes not from the Pope, but from the Adventists. Are we so intent on being persecuted that we invite it? What a distortion. I don't quite understand why the church that claims to carry the everlasting gospel characterizes its evangelism by railing on other Christians. If an evangelistic thrust includes any heartfelt gospel presentation on the tender mercies of God and the sacrifice of Jesus, it comes as an add-on. I don't know where this man has been. But most of the time it's the other way around. We rarely, we always talk about love, love, love and the mercy of God and so on, but we don't talk about the compelling message that he's given to his people in these last days. It's exactly the opposite in most of Adventism. So I don't know where he's coming from. But anyway, he says that if the tender mercies of God and the sacrifice of Jesus, they come as an add-on. Instead of weeks are spent on tedious discourses on prophecy and the various tangential subjects designed to identify the enemy as other Christians. The Muslims, the New Agers, the apathetic non-worshippers are no problem. Well, I would, agree, I would not agree that they're not a problem. Those are issues as well. But let's look at the big issues in the great controversy. Sure, we have to work for Muslims and New Agers and non-Adventist, apathetic non-worshippers. After 50 years of this diet, I just don't get it. His name is Robert. The reason I read that to you is because I want to show you what some people are thinking. That they have no clear discernment about the times in which we live. Last night I made reference to the fact that there are so many things converging all at once here at the end of the millennia. Not only are we going to see signs and wonders in the heavens, we are going to see an economic crisis. We are also going to see the development of globalism. It's already well underway. We're going to also see the development of the loss of civil liberties and rights and, and um, uh, unalienable rights of human beings 
in, especially in Western countries where freedom has always been a uh, very strong uh, part of our government. But not only that, we are going to see the rise of that which prophecy has declared would come at the end of time. The crisis of the ages over the law of God. The great principle of truth, both in heaven and on earth. Now the Pope's encyclical actually creates a foundation. And he brilliantly uses the very best arguments in favor of the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath, and twists them and applies them to Sunday. His very first sentence in the encyclical says, The Lord's Day, as Sunday was called, from apostolic times. That's the very first phrase. Now I want to ask you, what is the meaning of apostolic? That's referring to the time of the apostles. So he's saying that, that the apostles and the church members at the time of the apostles referred to Sunday as the Lord's Day. Have you heard that before from other sources? Of course. This is something that has been promoted by, by Sunday-keeping Christians for eons. And the arguments have always been very interesting. Oh, the law was done away with at the cross. Um, we no longer have to keep the moral law of God. Um, and there are many others as well. But what the Pope does, he brings all the theological arguments that he possibly can and places them in a very... Um, very cohesive way in connection with Roman Catholicism. At the, Arch, or at the um, Council of Trent, the Archbishop of Reggio made a very interesting comment. He, he was defending the authority of the Pope. The basis of his defense was soundly rooted in the Seventh-day Sabbath, Sunday, Sabbath issue. He said, in essence, the Pope has authority in all matters of faith and doctrine because the Pope has been the one who has changed the Saturday Sabbath to Sunday. By no other authority has it occurred. That was at the Council of Trent. That was the basis upon which Rome claims final authority in faith and practice. Well, I want to ask you a question. Did the apostles keep Sunday as the Lord's Day? 
How do we know? Yes, from the scriptures. We're going to go through a little Bible study here. I want you to have the tools that you need so that when you have questions on this matter, you will have answers and you can take them to the Word of God and show them. And we're going to look at some difficult Bible texts today and I'm going to show you how they apply and how they do not apply. So take out your papers and your Bibles and let us begin to look at this passage, or rather at this issue. And by the way, in this encyclical, Seventh-day Adventists have a lot to be concerned about. The Pope, yes, he was writing to the bishops. He was writing to Roman Catholics. But I can tell you, this encyclical has raised up a lot of support among Baptists, Pentecostals, all manner of Sunday keepers. He has handed them the theological arguments that they think they need in order to defend Sunday effectively. But not only that, the Pope has gone further. He has appealed to all Christians to legislate Sunday observance. No, no, he doesn't say set up Sunday laws. But he says almost that, essentially that, in, in different words. I'm going to read you just a, a brief passage or two from the encyclical before we begin this um, discussion of apostolic Sabbath keeping. Notice how he justifies um, Sunday observance and, it, and who it was that uh, actually changed. Never once, by the way, in, in the... Um, in the encyclical, does he bring any proof that the apostles kept Sunday? Never once. He just says that from apostolic times. But what he does do, he does, he does place the credit somewhere. And I'm going to read you from point number 63. Opposing the excessively legalistic interpretation of some of his contemporaries and developing the true meaning of the biblical Sabbath, Jesus as Lord of the Sabbath, and he quotes Mark 2.28, restores to the Sabbath observance its liberating character. That's true. That's what Jesus did. Carefully safeguarding the rights of God and the rights of men. That's true. This is why. Now this is the next sentence. This is why Christians, called as they are to proclaim the liberation won by the blood of Christ, felt that they had the authority to transfer the meaning of the Sabbath of the day of the to the day of the resurrection. So basically he's saying it's the authority of man that has changed the Sabbath to Sunday. It is not the authority of God. He admits that it was not God that changed it. He admit, and not only in this place, but there are other places also where he admits that it is of man. Then he goes on in point number 64 to make this statement. Only in the 4th century did the civil law of the Roman Empire recognize the weekly occurrence, determining that on the day of the sun, the judges, the people, the cities, and the various trade corporations would not work. Christians rejoice to see this 
thus removed the obstacles which until then had sometimes made observance of the Lord's Day heroic. So what he's saying here is that at the time of Constantine, who made the very first Sunday law, that the day of the sun, that, that people rejoiced, particularly Christians. Now, remember, Constantine had made himself a Christian. I don't think God made him a Christian. Constantine had made himself a Christian. And he brought paganism, you see, into the church. And he used civil law to support the laws, or rather the, the will or the desires of the bishops of Rome, who were very close to Constantine. In particular, Eusebius. Eusebius was a very close friend of Constantine, and he wrote a biography, by the way, of Constantine that was very flattering. Wouldn't you be a friend of someone who wrote a biography about you that was flattering? <clears throat> but notice what he says next. After saying what happened, he then says, it would therefore be wrong to see in this legislation of the rhythm of the week a mere historical circumstance with no special significance to the church and which she should simply set aside. What, she, what he's saying is that because Christians wanted Sunday observance and finally Constantine came along, made a, came along and made a law about Sunday observance that Christians could therefore not set it aside as if that could change the authority of God? Let me ask you a question. What is it that can change the law of God and the authority of God? Only God Himself. Not even the highest laws in the land can supersede the authority of the law of God. Another passage. In our own historical context, and this, ha this happens to apply here in Britain as it does in America and in other parts of Europe and Canada and Asia and wherever else there are Christians. In our own historical context, there remains the obligation. What does that mean, obligation? That's not an option. That's an obligation. That's something that's, that's required. There remains the obligation to ensure. What does that mean? That means to make certain that everyone can enjoy the freedom, rest, and relaxation which human dignity requires together with the associated religious, family, cultural, and interpersonal needs which are the difficult to meet if there is no guarantee. What is he talking about, guarantee? of at least one day in the week in which people can both rest and celebrate. You see, the Pope here is using terminology like to make sure or to ensure and to guarantee that at least one day of the week we can worship and, of course, associate with our families. How do you guarantee something to all humanity? Huh? By law, by civil law. That's the only way you can guarantee it as far as humanity is concerned. But he gets more bold and more direct. He says, therefore, also in the particular circumstances of our own times, Christians will naturally strive to ensure that civil legislation respects their duty to keep Sunday holy. 
He makes it plain. He's urging all Christians to rise up and start this process of making Sunday legislation. That's what he's doing. Now we have Pat Robertson of the Christian Coalition in America and other Christian groups all over the world talking about Sunday observance. Getting back to Sabbath keeping, as they call it. Getting back to observing the Lord's Day. You know, there's a very interesting phenomena that has been going on. For years, preachers were constantly preaching that the law was done away at the cross. And it no longer had binding and obligatory claims upon people. By doing away with the law at the cross, what happened in society? People, people began to overlook the law altogether. And great sin arose. Great crimes and the result is a decrease, a very dramatic decrease in morality. No matter where you turn, everywhere you see problems with morality. And you listen to the voices that are going on out there in the Christian world. They're constantly saying we have a problem with morality. We've got to get back to God. We have to bring back the people of this country and the nation back to God. What they're really saying is we have to create laws that will bring all of humanity into a religious mode. Is it easy to be in a religious mode when it's required by law? <laughs> of course, it's a lot easier, but it won't happen. But what I'm trying to say is this. For years, it is the, especially the Protestant, but also the Catholic and, and so on, had preached that the law of God was not binding. Therefore, there was an upsurge in crime and immorality in the world. Now, these same churches get on the grandstand and they start saying, Hey, we've got to change things. We've got to make things right. We've got to get the nation back to God. The law is binding after all. Oh, yes, they're starting to... Now you can go to any Sunday morning radio service just about and hear about the law of God and how important it is to live by the, the law of God. But you say, what about the fourth commandment? Oh, well, that was changed to Sunday. All right, so now you see what's happening. There's a reaction building up on a reaction. First, we didn't preach the no law. Then there was a reaction of immorality and crime. Now there's another reaction developing in which we're saying, yes, the law is valid. The law does have its place. And in order to justify civil legislation, they appeal to the, the laws of Moses. You know, how that the Old Testament law uh, penalty for Sabbath breaking was what? Death. Death. See? And so you're going to have a, a, a rise of legislation or pressure for legislation in our lands wherever we are using as the basis for that oppressive religious legislation the laws of Moses but the problem of morality is a result of the preachers themselves 
who have preached for years there's no law. And now when they have come to their, quote, come to their senses, now they're pushing for the law to the other extreme. Instead of preaching, what is only, the only thing that's going to change people's hearts and lower the immorality rate and the crime rate in our lands is that people themselves hear the preaching of the word and take it into their lives. That's what's going to bring true change of heart and a change in society. It's not going to be civil legislation that is going to change society. People may observe and do what society's laws tell them to do, but that, does that change their heart? Does that change their morality in their own souls? No, of course not. We could go on. But I want to ask the question now, did the apostles keep the Lord's Day as Sunday holy? First of all, I want to point out that the apostles were very, very careful to uphold the law of God. Um, but before we get to the apostles, let's, let's turn to what Jesus said. Matthew chapter 24. Very famous passage about the end of time. Matthew chapter 24 <clears throat> gives us this very, very interesting passage. Jesus said... <clears throat> In verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. And then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let the him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Neither let him which is in the field turn back to take his clothes. Woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. I worry about parents who are starting to have families now. But, he says, now notice verse 20. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. Jesus himself was telling the apostles that after he had gone back to heaven, when the abomination of desolation comes to them in their time, they were to flee and they were to pray that it was not going to be on what? The Sabbath day. Jesus was essentially saying that the Sabbath day is valid after I've gone to heaven. You see that? Watch that now. See what Jesus said? There in that simple verse is the clear testimony of Christ himself that the Sabbath would still be valid after the resurrection. Pray that your Sabbath, that your flight be not on the Sabbath day shows regard that he had and wanted his disciples and his apostles and the new church to have for the Sabbath. Now it comes down, remember that this passage has dual application, not only to the time of the apostles. Remember what they asked him, Lord, what is the, the uh, what are these uh, things? Well, let's read it. He said, tell us in verse 3, 
Tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign of thy coming and of the end of the world. So there's two things, both about their own time and about the end of the world. So when it comes down to the end of the world, Jesus is here saying that the Sabbath is going to be important right down to the end of time. The seventh day Sabbath. He's basically saying that not only in the apostles' time, but right down to the very end of time, the seventh day Sabbath is valid and that he wants and intends for his church to be keeping it. You see? Now we come over to the apostles themselves. Did the apostles have a regard for the law? The answer is yes. Turn with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John. By the way, John wrote this book, I understand, from the Isle of Patmos. He wrote the book, the Gospel of John, somewhere else. It was not on the island of Patmos where he wrote John. But uh, 1 John, 1 John chapter 3, and we'll begin reading with verse 4. Well, we'll just read verse 4. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. Now, John is going on um, about freedom from sin. The book of of 1 John is is largely dedicated to overcoming and to the principle of being free of sin. Notice verse 2, or rather chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things write I unto you that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, and so on. And he's going on um, about abiding in Jesus so that we can keep the commandments. Verse 4 says, He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word in him. Well, what are we talking about, his word? That's the Ten Commandments he's talking about there. But it's more than just keeping the Ten Commandments. There's a whole study right there in 1 John chapter 2 about righteousness by faith. Marvelous study there when you develop that. But we don't have time for that just now. In Him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in Him. He that saith he abideth in Him ought himself also so to walk, even as He walked. And he goes on. But in chapter 3, he makes it clear that he, John, believed in the Ten Commandment law of God. The basis of sin, or the basis, yes, the basis of sin is breaking the law, the Ten Commandment moral law. Now, I want to point out where John is in this time. John is the last disciple to pass away from the scene. He was the one who was around the longest. All the other apostles had died before him. He was there and in ministry and involved with the people of God right almost down to the end of the first century. This was nearly 70 years after Christ's resurrection. 
when John was writing and active. In fact, after he was released from the Isle of Patmos, apparently he went to Ephesus, where there was a very large congregation of, of Christians and where there was a center of commerce and trade. And through, through the various systems in place at the time, John could keep close contact with, with many, many churches right up until he passed to his rest. But this tells us that well after Jesus ascended back to heaven, that there was a lot of support, solid, ongoing support for the law of God. Now, John is writing this because he already began to see the iniquity, the mystery of iniquity working. Remember that if you're writing down at the end of your time, as he was with the book, or rather with, um, with, the, yeah, with the book of John, Notice um, he puts emphasis upon Christ as divine. In, the, in chapter 1 of John, he talks about Christ being the divine Son of God. He, he starts out by saying, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, he goes on to say, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So in other words, he, at the end of his life, towards the end of his life, he began to see this mystery of iniquity beginning to work. And in chapter 4 of 1 John, he makes this very interesting statement, Beloved, believe not every spirit. Why would John write that? There was already apostasy creeping into the church even in his day. Believe not every spirit, but try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is God. Uh, yeah, is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye heard that it should come. Interesting thing about this is that during this time, the Gnostic errors about the divinity of Jesus were starting to come into the church. And he was recognizing them. And he was pointing out that they were wrong. You see, John, God allowed John to live that long so that he could address some of those key issues. And he kept bringing people back to the law. God's holy law. God's moral law. Now we come over to the book of James. What did James believe concerning the law? Very interesting chapter 2 here. James chapter 2. And I want you to notice verses 8 and onward. Now, this is one of the apostles. In fact, this is one of the apostles that was the earliest to pass from the scene of action. Here he says, If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture. What is the royal law? That's the Ten Commandments. 
Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ye do well. There he's quoting Jesus. Jesus, you remember when Jesus uh, said this. Jesus um, made it very clear in this passage where he's being quoting, where he's quoted here, how that the law of God is to be kept. Notice what it says, but if ye have respect, in verse 9, to persons, ye commit sin and are convicted, or rather convinced, of the law as transgressors. For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. So James, one of the apostles, writing after Jesus had died and gone back to heaven, James is writing this saying that those who offend in one point, the law, have offended and are guilty of all of the law. So not only do the apostles teach that the moral law of God is, uh, is binding, but they believe in the whole law of God being binding. Not just nine out of the ten commandments. All ten. For he that said, do not commit adultery, said also, do not kill. Now if thou committest no adultery, yet if thou kill, thou art become a transgressor of the law. So speak ye, and so do, as they that shall be judged by the law of liberty. I like that. He makes it very clear that, that being a servant of Jesus Christ is not slavery. If you're going to keep God's law, you are not a slave. You are a servant. You, you are a servant because you love God. It is the devil that makes you a slave. And you're a slave to sin and you're bound in the chains and bondage of sin. And that is the law of liberty that is going to break and free you from, break those chains and free you from your slavery to sin and your slavery to Satan. You see that? So James taught very clearly that we are to uphold the whole law. Not just part of it, but the whole law. Now, let's come to some of the passages that uh, support this and some of the question passages as well. question is, was Sunday observed by the apostles? Remember what the Pope said? Sunday, the Lord's Day, as it was called, from apostolic times. All right, we're going to see if apostolic times, if in apostolic times they kept Sunday or if they kept Sabbath. Now we come over here to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We'll look at several passages here in Acts. And I want to lay some groundwork about Acts. Who wrote the book of Acts? Dr. Luke. When did Dr. Luke write the book of Acts? Nearly 30 years after the resurrection. That is important. Luke was writing the book of Acts nearly 30 years after the resurrection. 
Why is that important? Whatever acts, whatever he says in Acts has something to do with the way the people the ch of the church and the way the apostles believed and the way they practiced 30 years after Christ's ascension and before. Okay? Does that make sense? It should give us some big clues about what they believed. As you'll see in a moment. Okay, now we look at verse uh, 14 of Acts chapter 13. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. I want you to notice something here. Luke did not say this. Notice what Luke did not say. He did not say, but when they departed from Perga... They came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the day that the Jews call the Sabbath. Or the day that used to be the Sabbath. Or the day that, um, that we used to keep as the Sabbath. He just calls it the Sabbath. There's no question in his mind that it is the Sabbath. 30 years after Christ went back to heaven. There is still no question in Luke's mind about the seventh day Sabbath. By the way, I want you to notice something here also. Luke did not say a secular term for the Jewish Sabbath. He uses its sacred nomenclature. He does not say the seventh day of the week we went into the synagogue and sat down. He says the Sabbath, which was its sacred denomination, its sacred term. That's actually quite an interesting reveal. When you think about this, it's a mere account of what took place on that particular Sabbath day. But in reality, it is a big statement about Sabbath-keeping 30 years after the death of Christ and the resurrection. Isn't that important? Sure it is. Notice verse 27. For they that dwell at Jerusalem and their rulers, because they knew him not, nor yet the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath day. There he does it again. Once again, he doesn't say, oh, the Sabbath day of the Jews or the Sabbath that we used to keep. They have fulfilled them in condemning him and so on. They go on he on, goes on to describe what happened. Well, then, of course, the Jews got upset with Paul. And notice what it says here in verse 44. The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. This was not just the Jews. Here it was the whole city on the next Sabbath day. Now this would have been an opportune time for, for Paul to tell the people that a change had been made. They're all coming together. Now he could have easily have said to them, look, 
Christ changed the Sabbath to Sunday. We, his apostles, have changed the Sabbath to Sunday, or whatever. He, he would have had an opportunity here to tell these Gentiles and the Jews that the Sabbath had been changed, but he did not. There's not a word of it in any passage here in the book of Acts. The next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spake against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. Then in verse 50, But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and came unto Iconium. So in verse 49, it says, The word of God was published throughout all the region. Verse 50, but the Jews stirred up devout. I read 51, didn't I? But the Jews stirred up the devout and honorable women and the chief men of the city and raised persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them out of their coast. They shook the dust off their feet and so on. Now notice what it says in verse 52. Just so happens as a sidelight here, the disciples were filled with joy because of the persecution and with the Holy Ghost. Never is there a word 30 years after Christ's resurrection about a change of Sabbath. Okay. Let's look at um, Acts chapter 15. Just over a couple of... A little bit here. Now there's an argument that arises. Verse 1 says, And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be, what? Circumcised. After the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. Now, who is a real Judaizer? It's someone who's teaching the law of Moses. It has nothing to do with the Sabbath day. But Sabbatarians down through the centuries have always been accused of Judaizing. But that's not the issue. In fact... If the apostles had been keeping Sunday, do you think that these Judaizers would have accused them? You better believe it. That would have been caused a greater stir than the circumcision issue. But never is there a single accusation against the apostles for breaking the Sabbath. Never in all of the New Testament. Never once. Did any Judaizer come along and accuse them of keeping Sunday? Therefore, we know. We know that the apostles kept the seventh-day Sabbath. <laughs> you see that? If there would have been those accusations, we might have legitimate reason and basis to say that the apostolic church kept Sunday sacred. But there was never such an accusation. Never once. All right. And we come down to uh, verse 28. For it seemed good. This is after the council there at Jerusalem. Council together. It said, For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than those, these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, from blood and from things strangled, and fornication, from which if ye... Keep yourselves, ye shall do well, fare ye well. There was no question 
He could have right here said, remember, oh, remember to keep Sunday holy. There was no problem about Sabbath keeping in the New Testament churches in the first century. No problem at all. They understood it was God's holy Sabbath day based on the Ten Commandment law, which the apostles upheld. No question about it that it was unchanged. And this would have been an opportune time, once again, quite a few years after the resurrection of Christ, for the apostles to instruct the people in the change of Sabbath to Sunday. But not a word is spoken. Not one single word. All there is is abstained from meats offered to idols, from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication. That's not saying that you shouldn't keep the law of God. That all these things, if you keep these things, then you don't have to keep the law of God. Or the rest of the law of God. That was understood. It was clear that the law of God was important. In fact, some of this has to do with the law of God, particularly the fornication. But it says here, it's talking about things relevant to health and to things relevant to uh, idolatry. Meats offered to idols. You see, that was, to the pagan mind, that was saying that if you ate those meats offered to idols, you were partaking of pagan religion. So they had to separate that issue. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Again, that relates to the Ten Commandments. They weren't saying that the Ten Commandment law was done away with and all these things had to be done instead. But they were saying that in addition to the Ten Commandments, these things ought to be remembered and ought to be followed. So Acts 15 is also an important passage concerning the matter of Sabbath keeping. Now we come over to Acts 20. Acts 20, we'll read verses 6 and onward. This is a, another fascinating passage. You remember this story <clears throat> here? It says, And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days where we abode seven days. Verse 7, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them all ready to depart on the morrow and continued his speech until midnight. There was a long-winded preacher. He was worse than those Heartland preachers. I want you to think about this for a minute. Notice what it says. A lot of people here say that this passage tells us that the disciples kept Sunday holy. They got together to break bread. I can tell you something. The apostles, it says, um, broke bread house to house every day of the week. So which day were they keeping holy? If they were, if they were actually having a worship service and they were breaking bread in the worship service, that would be what? The Holy Supper, the Lord's Supper, wouldn't it? Communion. Well, now why would that be an excuse to keep Sunday holy? 
If that was communion, would then it not be consistent to keep Thursday holy? Because that's when bread was broken. In communion, when Christ had the Passover supper with his disciples, that was on Thursday. If we're going to use this as a basis for keeping a day holy, we would keep Thursday holy. Do you see how illogical some of these arguments are? But I want you to notice here, there's nothing said about communion. All they did was sit down and have a meal. They got together to break bread, have lunch together, and then have a little fellowship before Paul would leave on the morrow. But now some people are saying, oh, this was Sunday. This was Sunday, and it went on to Sunday night. Paul preached till midnight. But was it really? What day was it? Saturday night. Here we see, notice what it says, and upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached to them, ready to depart on the morrow, and continued his speech till midnight, and there were what? Many lights in the place, in the upper chamber where they were gathered together. That tells you that this meeting was at night. When does Sunday start? Sunset Saturday night. In Jewish reckoning, throughout Jewish history and early Christian reckoning and Sabbatarian reckoning right down to the end of time, the day begins when? At sunset. According to the Bible. And where does that come from? Genesis. Very good. That comes from the very beginning. The evening and the morning were the first day. The evening and the morning were the second day. It comes right out of Genesis, the creation. That's why we keep Sabbath from evening right through till evening. Now, <clears throat> so Paul is here preaching on the first day of the week. If it would have been Sunday night, what day would it have been? That would have been Monday. So it had to be Saturday night. Paul is preaching here on Saturday night, and there are many lights, and he preaches till midnight. And then in verse 9 it says, There sat in a window a certain young man named Eutychus, or Eutychus, depending on how you pronounce it, being fallen into a deep sleep and sleep. And as Paul was long preaching, <laughs> he was a long preacher, he sank down with sleep and fell down from the third loft and was taken up as dead. Paul went down and fell on him and embracing him and trouble not yourselves, he said, for his life is in him. When he therefore was come up again and broken bread and what? Eaten. They were not having a communion service. They were eating. And talked a long while, even till the break of day, so he departed. I want to point out something. Paul had deep regard for the seventh-day Sabbath. That's why he waited till Sunday morning to leave on his journey. He wasn't going to travel unnecessarily on the Sabbath day. And so he left on. Sunday morning when most people go to church. 
Well, at least not then, but now. He actually left on Sunday morning. When people actually say, well, he was... You know, this was Monday morning when he left. No, it wasn't. It was Sunday morning. Another very strong evidence of the apostles' strong commitment and belief in the seventh-day Sabbath. And notice it says they were not a little comforted. Verse 12. Well, there are more passages in the book of Acts. You can study them for yourself. Um, but I'd like for you to turn to 1 Corinthians with me for a moment while we finish up here. <clears throat> I don't want to keep you too long, but you can go and study these things. I want to recommend that you get a copy of History of the Sabbath by J. N. Andrews that will help you to develop a good, clear basis for this issue. It'll be a great help to you. It's been out of print, but I understand it's coming back into print again. Uh, there are a few uh, ancient copies around, if you can get a hand, your hands on them. Um, notice here in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you lay by him in store as God hath prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. Now, this passage has often been used <coughs> by Sunday advocates To say, yes, see, they had meetings on the first day of the week. They collected offerings. And they would have uh, uh, an offering for the saints. So that meant that they had a worship service. And it shows that this argument shows how shallow is the thinking of most people. If they can't see through this. But your responsibility, you see, sometimes God doesn't always reveal light to everyone on this issue. He lets them stay in darkness so that he can bring them in contact with you. So that you can show them the simple truth. Oh, man, I never saw that. And then what? You have more things you can share with them. You see, God is working he allows people to, to, as if had scales over their eyes. They can't see it until one of God's faithful servants. He puts them in contact with his church, with his people, and then they can share it with him. That's why you need these tools. You need them because people are going to ask questions. And when people ask questions, they want answers. And you'll have them. And those answers are sometimes so very simple that you can bring them the light of truth. And then you can bring them more truth. God could send an angel. And the people could see it. But he chooses to use human beings. Isn't that marvelous? God is wonderful. But we have to know the answers to these things or we won't be able to cooperate with him, will we? How can we work with God if 
if we don't have the answers when those questions come up. By the way, notice here it says in verse 2, on the first day of the week. Remember what happened back in the experience in Acts chapter uh, 20? Where Eutychus or Eutychus fell out of the window? Notice that it was on the first day of the week. Paul did not use, neither did Luke, neither does Paul in this case use any sacred term referring to Sunday. He does not say now on the new Sabbath, on the Christian Sabbath. He does not say on the Lord's Day. He does not say uh, on the sacred day of the Christians. He doesn't say anything that refers to this as a sacred day. He merely uses its secular terminology, its secular nomenclature. You see that? He says on the first day of the week. He doesn't give it any sacred bearing whatsoever. Upon the first day of the week, every one of you lay by him in store. Now what does he say? Does that say that there was a meeting every first day of the week? Absolutely not. What is being done here is that often people read into the text something that's not there. It does not say that on the first day of the week they all gathered together to have a meeting and make a collection. What it says here is that every one of you lay by him in store. What do you think Paul's talking about? He's saying, as God has prospered him, that there be no gatherings when I come. We are to lay our offering aside at the first day of the week before we spend it. So that there is going to be a large offering. And when Paul comes, he can take that offering back with him to the saints. To the churches of, of uh, Jerusalem or wherever there were saints that were struggling economically. He would be able to help them with these offerings from the Corinthian believers. He also gave the same instruction to the church of Galatia. So upon the first day of the week... Let every one of you lay by him in store. So what he's saying is, you, t you get paid, right, on Friday or whatever, the end of the week. You take it at the first day of the week and you put aside, before you spend it, you put aside that which is God's, according to how he's prospered you. And when the time comes for me to visit you, there will not be the necessity to go about from house to house trying to find who can help and who can send money back to. We can have it all done ahead of time and then I can just take the money with me when I go. You see? He's giving some practical instruction. He's not saying anything about a meeting on the first day of the week. He's not saying anything about the sacredness of the first day of the week at all. Not a single word. So there you have it on that passage as well. Jesus said in, in, uh, through Paul in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter uh, 8, verse 
He says, I will write... Verse 10 and verse, uh, chapter 8, verse 10, he says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. When are we talking about? We're talking about God's people at the end of time, especially. Notice chapter 10, verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days. Once again, he repeats it. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. So in one case, he's writing them in chapter 8, he's writing them in their hearts and putting them in the mind. And in chapter 10, he puts it in the hearts and writes it in the mind. So God is putting his law in our hearts and minds by writing, so to speak. He's indelibly stamping it upon your character in the law of God if you're obedient to Christ. That's what God does. And that includes all of His law, the full Ten Commandment law. And notice that Paul here is quoting Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31, verse 33. He's quoting Jeremiah, who is writing 600 years before Christ. It's only one law. The whole span of time has been one holy law, one royal law, one law of liberty, the Ten Commandment law of God. Brothers and sisters, as we come down to the very end of time, there is going to be a great movement to establish Sunday as a legislative enactment so that all human beings will be compelled to follow Satan's spurious day of worship. By the way, John Paul II distorts history on some other things as well. He quotes um, Ignatius and Ignatius' letter to the Magnesians. <laughs> I did a little research on this letter to the Magnesians. Historian after credible historian, Sunday-keeping historians, make it very clear that this letter to the Magnesians is spurious. It was a forgery. And to say that Magnesius refers to the Lord's Day is purely conjecture. And yet the Pope uses this as an authoritative source. Now, who was Ignatius? He was one of the bishops one of the early bishops, but well after the death of the last apostle. So he could not be accounted as being apostolic. Nor could he be part of apostolic times, because he was well after the apostles. But not only that, the Pope is trying to say that this is the authority for the change, or part of the authority for the change. And it's a, he uses a letter that is deemed by the most reputable Sunday-keeping historians as spurious. Unbelievable. Killen, a famous historian, I believe he was a German historian, refers to this letter to the Magnesians. 
He says that in the 16th century, 15 letters were brought out from beneath the mantle of hoary antiquity and offered to the world as the productions of the pastor of, the, of Antioch, Ignatius. Scholars refused to receive them on the terms required, and forthwith eight of them were admitted to be spurious. Uh, now I'm out of sequence with my pages here. Just a second. Forgeries. Sorry, not spurious. In the 17th century, the seven remaining letters in somewhat altered form again came forth from obscurity. Again, discerning critics refused to acknowledge their pretensions. He also informs us that Calvin himself, the great Calvin, passing a sweeping sentence of condemnation on the Ignatian epistles. In fact, um, Killen says that the Magnesians, the, the epistle to the Magnesians, uh, was corrupted by a translator who replaced the term Lord's life with Lord's day so that it reads as if we are to do something special and something important on Sunday, which is the Lord's day. See? And they use this as some basis. But the, the historians are actually saying that was referring to the Lord's life. We are to imitate the Lord's life, which would be valid. And yet the Pope brings this out as if this is some kind of authoritative basis for it. He also makes a very interesting statement in which he says that there were times when there have been those who have kept Sabbath, the Seventh-day Sabbath, all throughout history. There have always been those who have kept both days, Sabbath and Sunday. But again, he distorts history and does not give a full discussion of the matter in order to uh, in order to deceive you because there I would go one step further than a pope there have always been those who kept the Sabbath exclusively not just as two brother days keeping both days there have been always those who kept Sunday or Sabbath exclusively which is another very important point. And I have um, written a little um, article that uh, you might find interesting. I'll be happy to give it to anyone who wants a copy of it concerning this historical uh, misinformation. Showing from historians all throughout history, there have always been Sabbatarians, even in Rome itself. Well, we've run out of time, and I know that you're probably getting hungry, and we could spend more time on this subject. But I hope now that you have some tools that you may use to gain an advantage, a spiritual advantage, when you're given the opportunity to testify for the faith that lies within you. That you may show others how it is that Christ himself and the apostles advocated keeping the holy and moral law of God. May God bless you and help you in these last days when the great issues are about to rise in great power upon the earth and when God's people are going to reveal the character of God to all those that 
God will lead us to do that for us.